ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's all loud music. An MC yelling something. There's usually a lot of sweat smell in the air. Let's go! Let's go! So a battle is basically you have a competition, a contest of two sides. It can be a single dancer and another single dancer, or it can be teams. It can be two, three, four, or a whole team, which can be you know up to ten or twelve people. And they separate and they face each other, opposite ends. And one side will go and dance for 30 to 40 seconds. It's a communication of one side will debate and present their argument. And then the other side will counter with their debate argument. These days, Joe Hyun Yoon is a scientist working as a chemist in a research lab in Sydney. But he's also the founder of Australia's largest street dance battle event, Destructive Steps. Uh, my b-boy name is J1 or Joe One. Uh, I represent 143 Liverpool Street, familiar. Um, I have been into hip hop and breaking for over 20 years now, going on 23 years. I'm Faza Draki. Welcome to Days Like These. How far would you go for something you love? When Joe is first fired up by the art of breaking, it would burn to the exclusion of everything else, even the person he loves. Reporter Maybell Lynn takes us into the world of hip-hop, dance battles and romance. I think I started getting into hip-hop when I was around uh, 14 and probably really started breaking more seriously around when I was 18. So I discovered breaking and I think up until that point I had done a lot of other things outside of school like sports, uh, taekwondo, so they were all very regimented, a lot of rules and a lot of rigid sort of structure, whereas this seemed to be very free and uh, expressive. Joe is just one of a handful of Asians at a mostly white school. And the Sutherland Shire where he lives isn't exactly a brimming hub for hip hop. People didn't know that at all about Korea. People knew China, Japan, and then nowhere else in between. And there's a lot of ignorance and racism you have to deal with. Hip hop was born in the Bronx in the 70s. There's drugs, crime, poverty, and gang violence. And the youth there, they know the struggle. The culture that New York kicked off became known as hip hop. And breaking is the dance that sprung from it. By 2002, when Joe is 16, it's well established across the Pacific Ocean. And this Korean Australian teenager is hungry for it. He scours magazines and online forums for pictures and videos of dances that he admires, for battles to study, and hip-hop tracks that you would never hear in a shopping mall or your average radio station. He listens to hip-hop heroes like Tupac, Lauryn Hill, Biggie, Drunken Tiger and Nas, 
DJs and dancers become his family, and his clothes reflect it too. Yeah, just sort of that early 2000s hip hop wear. So baggy, not not too baggy, but just baggy clothes,、uh, big shirts, basketball jerseys.、Uh, some people had cornrows, some people didn't. A lot of bandanas. Bandanas were quite big at the time. Bandanas, headbands, sweatbands. Yeah,、uh, but I just remember like when I grew up. People didn't dress the way I dressed. It's safe to say that Joe is in the thick of it. He finishes school, studies science at university, but breaking is taking up most of his time. So we practiced in my living room. We would practice at friends' houses. We would practice at school sometimes, when when we could sort of sneak into the multi-purpose hall. We would also Practice at the local shopping center during around the time the shops were closing, but the shopping center was still open because of the movie theater. And I got, had old VHS like footage from a camcorder that we recorded some of the practices. I remember one night we were we were taking a break, just resting, and the cleaner, the cleaner is full gear, came down and threw down a, a windmill set. And did a did a combination called genie windmill. A windmill is when a breaker powerfully rolls their torso in a circular path along the floor, continuously going across their chest, shoulders, and back. Legs are in a V shape, twirling through the air. And a genie windmill is all of that, but hands are crossed over the chest. And then he smiled and got up, and he kept pushing his、uh, cleaning trolley and walked off and smiled and waved. And we we're all just there, just like, what just happened? I, I just couldn't believe that. I was so, and we we're all just standing there, like, come back, come back. And then he had to obviously finish his job. So he was pushing his cleaning cart trolley thing. I never, never found out who he was. Almost every evening weekend is invested in training outside the Downing Centre Court in Sydney. It's got a smooth surface, perfect for power moves like the windmill, and more forgiving than concrete floors. As a speaker blasts breakbeats throughout the night. The floor is peppered with b-boys and b-girls decked out in baggy clothing, caps, and sneakers selected for their support. The location inspires the name of Joe's freestyle crew, One Four Three Liverpool Familia, and the floral design on the ground becomes their insignia. There are weeks where he sees his crew more than his own family. When I was growing up, among my Australian friends, they would know me as the Korean person. And when I would go back to Korea, all my cousins and relatives they would refer to me as the Australian. So you you deal with a dual identity where you don't belong anywhere. In hip hop culture, I am neither of those things. I'm I'm B Boy J One or Joe One. I represent this crew, and I am who I am. No no one refers to me based on something that I had no control over. I got to shape my identity through my own. Uh, efforts and, and actions, and that's something that no amount of money, no amount of status can give you, is to to know who you are in life. Joe knows this debt is unrepayable, but he still wants to show his gratitude to the street dance scene. To do this, he's going to attempt something that's never been done before: to bring international breaking champions, the cream of the crop, to Sydney. And have them compete against the locals. He sees it as a cultural exchange for both groups, and a chance for the world to know about the Australian breaking scene. So, in the summer of 2008, he rents out a university bar space and sends out an invite to two legendary South Korean breaking crews, Gambler Crew and TG Breakers. They agree, and Joe's very own battle event is born. 
So the first destructive steps, there was exactly 212 people attended. That includes competitors and audience. I honestly just wanted more than 100 would have been great. I think it was 24 teams. Yeah, so each team was comprised of three dancers. It was a very, very small grassroots event. I mean, financially, it was completely failure because we, we lost everything. But I was very stressed beforehand and relieved afterwards. But he would run it again. And again. And again. And again. Each year, the numbers swell. And so does the massive amount of time it takes to get it done. I would drive to different practice spots around Sydney and visit different uh, leaders in those areas. And that's how I sort of built that kind of rapport and just talk to them, try to get them on board, try to understand their situation, what was going on in their area, in their neighbourhood, printing out posters, giving all these studios, sort of like trying to work with them and link with them. I'd walk around the city, look at empty buildings and think about who owns it, who, how much it would cost to hire. Sometimes he's lonely, but with destructive steps, and let's not forget his study, he's got no time to lose. It was just weird what I was willing to do, whatever it takes, whatever it costs. It was a sort of maniacal psychosis. It just drove me every waking minute of my life. In 2014, it's the sixth year, and Joe hasn't missed a beat. Destructive Steps is now a beloved fixture of the Australian street dance scene, but he kicks it up a notch. The battle won't just reach across states, it's going to reach across oceans for the first time. There has never been a world final event in Australia for any street dance competition up until that point. So I had smaller events called Destructive Steps all around Asia Pacific, and they were in Hong Kong and Macau, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, New Caledonia, Singapore. And the winners of those events would then be flown to Australia for the world final. And that had never happened before. And for the first time, we it jumped from this grassroots 212 people at Sydney Uni one day to this massive, massive event, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dancers and vendors and all these other people doing shows. And with a scaled up destructive steps on his hands, something unexpected happens. The fact that he really loved science, he loved all the geeky things. He's a fan of Star Wars, I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings. Everything just began to click. It was like putting IKEA furniture together with the instructions. Joe meets another Joe. My name is Joanne. My given name is Pham Le Bic Duing because I'm Vietnamese. Joanne was walking around in a bright pink wig and one of the previous destructive steps. Now, love isn't on the cards for Joe, but when he sees her again at another battle, he remembers her. This time, she's one of the battle event photographers, so she takes a photo of him. And later, he takes her to dinner. I had just sort of gotten out of relationships um, like six months before that, so it was not, not something that was on my radar that I wanted to date anyone. But I thought maybe it was time to just try to get to know people. And then she was also so different to other people I'd met, where she's very understanding and very open-minded and quirky and funny. When Joe isn't practicing a Liverpool street, he's discussing it over a drink at the local bar. 
and watching videos during his commute to work. Just like many street dancers, practice alone can eat up almost every night of the week. He was always on the phone with someone. He was always looking at a spreadsheet. He wasn't returning my memes anymore. And I thought, oh my gosh, what's changed? What's happened? Is it me? What have I done? I was trying so hard to explain to Joanne like how, how important this is to me and what it takes out of me. He had virtually no security for himself. He had literally poured blood, sweat, tears and everything he had into destructive steps. And I remember us arguing about this, me saying to him, we should just go to the 7-Eleven and have dinner there because we had no money. And I remember him holding me really tight and saying, I promise you, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to have money. We are going to have a home. We are going to make a home. And I remember crying and thinking, what have I gotten myself into? And not long after that, I said those words to him. I'd said to him, I wish I'd met you after destructive steps. I, I basically sacrificed my financial security of my 20s for the event. Uh, yeah, I, my family migrated here in 89 and through you know, bad business mis misfortunes and, and decisions, we went bankrupt. And I grew up basically most of my childhood and teenage years, all of my teenage years was were basically a single income family, single mom, and was getting Centrelink and uh, living in housing commission. So I, I, I grew up quite poor. I didn't buy a lot of things. So actually a lot of the money that I got from whatever I got through part-time jobs at a pizza place, tutoring high school kids when I was at uni, all that money just got funneled into Destructive Steps. Joe sits down with Joanne and for the first time shows her the bank statements. He's poured tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars into Destructive Steps over the years. But Joanne has no intention of giving up on him. I felt so lucky at the time. And of course there were, there were moments of, oh my gosh, this is happening so quickly. Am I, is this going to, you know, is this Icarus has flown too close to the sun and now something's going to happen? I was practicing at 143 Liverpool Street, which is where we practice at, and at night time, and I was just tired, and I was just practicing some moves, and my beanie at the time that I was wearing got caught on the ground, and my head sort of stayed in one position, and my whole body rotated around, so it was like someone's trying to snap my neck kind of thing, and what had happened was my disc in my C5, C6 herniated into my spinal cord. And for a really long moment, I couldn't feel anything in my body from my chin down. And I looked over, all I could do was just move my eyes and my mouth. And I saw my crewmate, Sam, and I yelled out at him. And he came over and picked me up. And I was sort of dead weight to him. I had to fully put my body on him. I couldn't move at all. Joe texted me afterwards and he told me about this feeling of not being able to move his limbs and from the neck down feeling paralyzed. And I remember being so scared. I remember in that moment, I envisioned our lives together in the worst possible scenario. Joe goes to a doctor who recommends an MRI. After that, there's a visit to the neurosurgeon 
and the neurosurgeon said, yeah, your, your disc is herniating into your spinal cord. And he showed me on the MRI the point at which the disc was going into the cord. So the first neurosurgeon I went to was like, oh my God, you're going to die. Like if you get knocked over a bit, you might, you might completely be a quadriplegic. A second opinion gives him more hope. He says Joe will need major surgery. And while he doesn't recommend Joe to start a weightlifting career anytime soon, he's cautiously optimistic. And I remember just feeling like, wow, this is really serious. I remember him being really scared to go under. And, you know, I'd never seen him so vulnerable. You know, this like person that I had known to be strong, to be my rock, to be my, you know, my everything was crumbling. Joe undergoes major surgery to remove the herniated disc. And a bit of bone from his hip is put into his spine. The taxi came, picked me up, drove me to the hospital, and he was just being wheeled out. I sat in the chair and I looked at him and his face was swollen. I could see the incision and the doctor said everything would be fine. He would be okay. And I remember telling myself, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And I did a little bit because I, I was so happy, you know, not, not because, not just because he was okay, but because I was so terrified of being that person that had to watch him have something he was so passionate about taken away. After I got the surgery, there was about two, three months where I couldn't really break at all. And I just had to rebuild my body. So just doing a lot of exercises, light work, getting a bit heavier and heavier in terms of um, workload. And I remember doing lots of just general exercises, running, core exercise, resistance bands. The recovery is slow, but steady. His body is permanently affected, but he's lucky. He's okay. His relationship with Joanne is as strong as ever. So he makes her a promise about the future of destructive steps. I said, I'll only do up to number 10. And then no matter what happens, it finishes at 10. Each time she said, you don't have to do that. I was like, no, I want to do that. I think if I don't, if I don't stop at 10, I think it's going to kill me. I have to stop somewhere. Destructive steps, 10. He wants it to be a celebration, an end of an era, the keeping of a promise. I wanted it to be legacy and I wanted it to be all the past champions of the competitions and I wanted it to be a huge celebration of the future that can be. Three days of dance battles, more than 10 different categories. And Joe calls on the champions of previous years to return for the 10th and final destructive steps. And with them, so do more than a thousand dancers from all over Australia and the world. I, I paused for a moment to just stare at all these people who were so looking forward to this day. And I thought, you know, wow, I, I don't think I'll ever see this again. You know, like just, well, this is it. Dance's journey from all over the globe. Korea, France, Japan, the UK, Taiwan, New Caledonia, Russia. World champion freestylers and b-boy crews go head-to-head -head in the grandest of finals. But then, a hush falls over the crowd. It's a sort of silence that's only ever reserved for the moment before the winners are announced. But this time, all eyes are on the man who had given 10 years of his life for this 
very moment. Make some noise for Jay! Not going to cry, not going to get emotional. I'm just going to say the speech, thank people, show respect, and that'll be that. And then I got up there and I just, all this emotion just hit me. I couldn't read the speech that I wrote and I just spoke from the heart. And When I started this, I, uh, I wanted to give back something that uh, I could never repay because uh, as someone who's a child of a migrant family, crying and... One of, the B- one of the younger B-boys from SKB, Brandon, he, he's a little kid. He gave me a little tissue. And I just remember thinking that, wow, this is, um, this is it. And I thanked everyone that I, I wanted to thank, said what I wanted to say. He thanks Joanne specifically. Then facing his community, he kneels and bows so deeply that his forehead touches the floor. In Korean and many other Asian cultures, This is an expression of extreme gratitude. It was just, I'm packed up, it's done, and it's it's finished. Despite how I had tried not to admit it, but it was was everything in my life for so long. You know, I was 33 at the end when when I stopped. You know, it was a third of my existence almost. I'll always be a B-boy, I mean, that's who I am. I'd said to Joe that I wish I'd met him after Destructive Steps, but I don't think about that anymore because I think that we wouldn't be who we are today without it. That was Joe Hyun Byun and Joanne Pham. This story was produced by Maybelle Lin. Our sound engineer was Angie Grant. Sophie Townsend is our brilliant executive producer. Big thanks to Destructive Steps Dance Association for the use of footage in this story. And thank you to the African-American and Latinx communities for the gift of hip-hop and street dance. This story was produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Darug people. For the love of days like these and all things hip-hop, We'd appreciate it if you take a hot minute to review the podcast on your favourite app and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. On our next episode, a pair of women's leggings turns a relationship and a family upside down. Join us for Rudy's story, a tale of love, acceptance and a whole lot of sparkly things besides. I was very worried about what was going through Laura's head. So I was avoiding the conversation. And I'm still scared because now it's us. That's next time on Days Like These. See you then. Do you ever feel like the mainstream culture of the last, I don't know, 50 years has somehow exploded? And maybe we're all just living in the debris? That's what I said. What the hell? You better... I mean, there used to be way more stuff that we all knew about. So, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. I'll be back. <laughs> Crikey. No! What's the deal with lampshade? Look at me, look at me. I'll let you finish. 
but not anymore. Admit it, the mainstream is dead. Dead, dead, dead. For reasons we already know. I'm on the internet all the time, not just for work, just because I there's something wrong with me. But here's the thing. When mainstream pop culture exploded, it was less of a demolition and more of a big bang situation. And now, something much more interesting is taking its place. So you've got big discussions on, would you baptise baby Yoda? I studied the discipline of biology at Houghton Dunn University, making me kind of smart. I feel like I remain an unsuccessful polyamorous. <laughs> like, I, it's really hard. It's really f***ing hard. My Geist is the ABC Everyday podcast that decodes pop and internet culture. The biggest and weirdest trends, why certain things are blowing up, and where it's all going. And we're about to bring you season two, in which we find out, can calling yourself a bimbo be feminist? Young women using bimbo as a term for basically being like a byword for like dropping out of hustle culture and also kind of reclaiming unapologetic femininity. Someone's gonna call you a slut or a whore or whatever as a woman, whatever you do. We can't win, so you may as well own it. We also wanna know, how did an entire generation, in fact, two generations really, get so mad at capitalism? I hate rich people. This Nepo baby was complaining that her mom's assistant had gotten her sushi from Ralph's. Okay, it's capitalism. I work three jobs and I still feel like I'm not doing enough. Crazy, right? <laughs> Most young people I talk to are not confident that their life will be better than their parents. There were young people, 15 to 18, that are really open to these right-wing critiques of capitalism. You know, everybody is going to be permanently a renter. Is it true that TikTok has somehow made ADHD cool? I feel like we most often talk about the disadvantages of ADHD. However, there are a lot of superpowers that come along with the ADHD neurotype. I mean, I just got an ADHD diagnosis and I definitely didn't do it for clout. But I have to admit, it is less scary to say it out loud in 2023. I mean, this is being recorded, right? Suddenly the conversation around ADHD became all at once very normalised, but also very flippant. We also investigate. Are doctors overcharging the people who think they have it? It's a little over $500 and you have to pay it at time of booking and then wait the 14 to 16 weeks until the appointment. Are you in the queue at the moment? I am not. I don't have 550 bucks to cough up at this exact moment. Furthermore, why is everyone suddenly allergic to monogamy? Now it's like, if you don't practice ethical non-monogamy, it's sort of like, aww, only sleep with one person? That's so, like, retro. Like, good for you. Also, why are high-end brands and edgy scenesters referencing God? I mean, is Christianity having some kind of moment? Basically, it, it started as a group chat between four people. We would just send each other God stuff, and we thought, you know what? This is a huge trend. God is trending. What I'm asking is... Is that crucifix ironic? The Catholic aesthetic, I think, is a big part of this. They have a $400 chainmail bra made of gold crucifixes. And, <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, it's hot. And I was like, no, do I have $400? No. no, 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 no. Why is Gen Z so into horror? Gen Z is very aware of social issues. And I think we're much more interested in art that points out problems within our society. So Cocaine Bear has hit theaters, taking the world by storm. The super thin look is back. So what happened to all that so-called body positivity? Hey guys, I'm gonna tell you guys how to get model skinny. I'm a nutritionist and a personal trainer. Unquestionably, wherever you put me in the world, I'm a fat person. Like, thin never really went out. 
There's a new episode of Schmeidgeist out every Wednesday where we take you down a new rabbit hole. Left, right, up, down and sideways. It gets pretty hairy in some corners. Find us on the ABC Listen app, subscribe and that's it. That's everything you have to do. No critical thinking, no self-awareness, no thoughts, just vibes.